Animal Souls, The Power of Uncertainty, and Getting Freaky with Angels. All that and more on this episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Hey everybody, welcome to the first ever Ask Science Mike podcast. This is a weekly show where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And you know, as luck would have it, I've got a head cold, so my voice sounds really strange and it's making me self-conscious. But whatever, it doesn't matter. It's your show. I'm answering your questions. I have no plan other than seeing where this goes and where you take it. Let's get started. Hey, Science Mike. All right, so here's my question. Knowing what we do about science and evolution and uh, assuming that's all correct, uh, who was Adam? And I guess by that I mean who was the first person with a soul? So, you know, going from single-celled organisms to humans, at some point something must have clicked over or something extra was added. Um, Now, I guess that does kind of assume that animals don't have souls, which, I mean, or bonus question, do animals have souls? But uh, anyway, do you have any insight as to maybe when or who or what um, kind of created this extra layer of humanity that connects with God and contemplates existence and, uh, you know, all that stuff? All right. Well, hey, thanks. You know, as first questions for a podcast go, that's a pretty good one. Thanks a lot. (laughs) You know, it's like where everybody goes when they first start thinking about evolution, when you've traditionally thought of a Genesis uh, creationist model. And for those of us who care about holding on to God and holding on to spiritual beliefs, while also accepting and understanding scientific facts like the theory of evolution via natural selection, This is a really inevitable question, one that I've given a lot of thought. If we're going to consider the issue scientifically, we have to start by really defining what we're talking about. Uh, Part of how the scientific method does its magic is to be precise in its definition so that we're not spending all our time exploring different concepts. So what is a soul anyway? Um... You know, there's sort of a classical ideas about soul, that this is the essential essence of a, of a being that persists beyond death and is separate from its physicality. That's a really classical idea about souls. There's another idea about souls, that it's simply the essential essence of something, but not necessarily separate from its physicality. It is that which defines something. So, by those definitions... Both animals and people would have the second type of soul. And the first type of soul would be basically impossible to define. Science doesn't speak to the supernatural. Um, There is no physical evidence that anything has a soul, and so science doesn't speak to it at all. But there's another issue in this question that sort of uh, brought to mind Uh, something about Adam. You know, the story of the fall and of Adam and Eve is incredibly important to me because it it speaks 
something real about what it means to be a human versus any other animal. And what do I mean by that? Um, Humans have to consider the consequences of their actions in a way that animals don't. We have uh, ethical obligations. We have morality. Other animals, especially higher animals, have some moral, but not a reasoned ethic like we do. And that difference comes down to our consciousness. Of course, consciousness might be an even more slippery word than soul. (laughs) So let's define precisely what I mean when I say consciousness. Consciousness is the ability to respond to the environment. That's it. Uh, I got that from Michio Kaiku uh, in his book, The Future of the Mind, where he has one of the most helpful discussions about consciousness that I have ever read. Uh, He sort of surmises that consciousness emerges from feedback loops and then creates an ability to respond to the environment. And he sets forth sort of levels of consciousness, and this is really helpful when we consider what's different about people from animals. Your most basic consciousness would be a single loop where, based on some input, an action is taken, and that action creates change in the environment that this loop must then respond to. Think about your thermostat. If you set the heat to 68 degrees and your house falls to 67, your thermostat is aware of that. And not only is it aware, it responds by turning on the heat. Now, when your house then warms up to, say, 69 degrees, your thermostat turns the heat back off. It is aware of and responding to a dynamic environment that it affects. That's one loop. But of course, that's a very basic and primitive form of consciousness. So Kaiku says that there's also a level one consciousness to the thermostat's level zero. That'd be something like a plant. Think about the model of the world that plants build. It's much, much, much more complex than a thermostat. A thermostat's world is nothing but temperature. But a plant's world would include, what, humidity? The direction the sun is coming from? What time of year it is? How wet or dry it is? the nutrients in the soil, even whether it's being attacked or consumed by animals, all these things go into a plant's model of reality. So there are many more tens and dozens, even hundreds of feedback loops required for plant consciousness. The same would be true of immobile animals, uh, sponges, maybe even some mollusks. But as you move up in sophistication, you get to organisms, especially animals that can move. They can actually go from place to place in the world. And because of that, their model of reality must be much more detailed than a thermostat or a plant. They have to be aware of their physical proximity to other things, the location of food, the location of predators, uh, and they have to actually have senses. And, And this level of consciousness requires so many feedback loops to keep going that nervous systems emerge. Suddenly you have brains and brain stems and all these sorts of very elaborate, very intricate constructs in order to create a a, a level two consciousness. Now, what comes next? Level three. What's level three? Social animals. Social animals have to be aware of everything a normal animal does, but they also have to have some awareness of the mental state of other organisms. That's quite remarkable. Your dog assesses and understands the feelings and mental state of other members of its pack. This is also true for elephants or dolphins or chimpanzees. And this requires 
hundreds of thousands of neural loops to pull off. You have to build an understanding of another organism's understanding of the world. It's quite remarkable. But that's not the top. There is one particular attribute that human consciousness, near as we can tell, is in exclusive possession of on our planet, and that is space-time. The model that humans build about reality encompasses time. That's not true of any other animal, even the very, very bright animals uh, that are near to us um, neurologically, like chimpanzees, dolphins, or elephants. We alone are constantly forecasting the future. We alone are always weighing the potential outcome of any action versus our long-held experience. And this is quite a burden. <laughs> it gives us stress and anxiety because we can imagine what it's like to not have food. We can imagine what it's like to be um, excluded from the tribe or the group. It is this incredible gift that the creation poem in Genesis discusses our ability to use a space-time model of consciousness to determine right from wrong. And with it grows an ethical and moral expectation for humanity not present in any other animal. So this, to me, is when you get Adam and Eve, when an, the immense time frame of human development through evolution, organisms finally could build a space-time model of reality. And at that moment, something unique happened in their souls. Well, that was an absolutely phenomenal first question. So let's see what we've got next. Hey, Mike, this is John from Central California. I have a question for you kind of about certainty and how you deal with that. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a scientist and a believer, and um, I've recently started to explore some of the doctrines and, um, and ideas uh, that have been kind of handed to me or taught to me over, the, over my years in the church that I've um, just kind of accepted. Uh, I've I found myself, as I'm exploring those, um, going from a place of certainty on one side of the issue or the topic and coming to a place of certainty on the other side. Um, I'm trying to keep my mind open and, and trying to kind of remain in a place of uncertainty and embrace that. Um, but it's difficult for me because I'm always looking for facts and looking for certainty. Uh, how do you deal with this issue? All right. Thanks, man. Love what you're doing. Oh, wow. An actual scientist is listening to the program. That's kind of intimidating. <laughs> I'll try to answer the question in any way. Um, yeah, I've been through that. I was a really certain Southern Baptist for a long time. I was sure that God was in control and that I was following the one true God. And then I became an atheist. I became equally certain and resolute that there was no God. And I became very certain about what science had to tell me about the universe. Now, I want to be clear, these are different kinds of certainty. For the religious person, we're trusting that what an all-powerful creator tells us is trustworthy. In science, we're simply placing confidence in beliefs, which is proportional to the amount of evidence that we have for them. But both of them tickle the human need for certainty. Now, this need is completely valid, by the way. 
Since our brains, as I said in the last answer, build a space-time model of consciousness, we're constantly forecasting and wondering about the future. We feel good when we guess right. That means our model of reality is accurate. And it means if you think back to the times when we were traveling on the plains and in a pre-agricultural society, our ability to forecast where food and water may be found, that was worth feeling good about. And as we moved into an agricultural society, making the right calls about weather patterns, that was rewarded as well. So our need for certainty is natural and warranted, but can undermine our ability to be open to new ideas. It can undermine our abilities even to be happy in life. Because as we learn more about reality, as we learn more about humanity's understanding of God and even science's understanding of the universe, any person will find that all of human knowledge is very, very limited. Now, we can put robots on Mars, <laughs> and we can assemble vast collections of religious writings about people's experiences of the Almighty. But the fact is, there is far more out there unknown than known, and that can give us kind of a philosophical head trip. So to avoid the trap of excessive certainty, to avoid having the rug pulled out from under me in the future when I learn new things about reality, I have a trick. I take all my ideas about the world and I hold them in an open hand instead of a closed fist. So everything I know about God, everything I've learned about science, I put them in an open hand. That does not mean I take all information equally. No. Things that are absurd, I'd give a lot less confidence to. Things that don't have evidence to support them, I put less confidence in. But I've learned to hack my brain's need for certainty by being certain about my own uncertainty. I know that there are things I don't know. I know that I'm wrong about some things. I just don't know which things. And that compels me to live a life of relative intellectual humility while still allowing me to, what, experience God, to trust that there may be some higher plan out there than simply what we can learn through science, but also to accept scientific fact and not reject it if it is in somehow conflict with my preconceived religious notions. Uh, I like to swim in both streams, science and faith. Great question. What's next? Hi, Science Mike. Uh, my name is Crystal, and I have a question about a verse in Genesis. Uh, Genesis 6-2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Okay, so there's a lot about that that I have many questions about. And I know you don't necessarily take Genesis literally, but I think there's a lot here um, that we can dissect scientifically and in hand-in-hand hand with faith and spirituality and stuff like that. Um, I noticed a couple different things. One, that the sons of God are often taken as angels because by the use of humans, it implies that they were different beings than humans. Uh, what I found interesting were that angels or fallen angels, we're not, I'm not sure about that, found human women attractive, which gives thought to angels' features. Do they look similar to that of humans? Um similar enough to find other them attractive. 
I know it's not really a new idea that angels or, you know, like fallen angels got funky with human women. Cause I know we see a lot of like giants <laughs> in the, in the old Testament. Um, and it's, I know it's a theory that some people think that those were the Nephilim, Nephilim, Nephilim. Yeah. Angel human hybrids where this came from. Uh, that's where they came in. And I was wondering, um, what you thought, your thoughts about that whole thing, that whole verse there scientifically, um, does that mean angels have similar features to humans, that they have free will, that if you are a fallen angel, then you can suddenly have free will, and how you become a spiritual body that suddenly decides to have a physical body to hang out with um, a physical lady? <laughs> yeah, lots of questions, lots of good stuff in there. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Um, thanks. You're right. I don't take Genesis literally. Thinking about Genesis in a literal context is actually not even very interesting. It weakens the text. <laughs> I know heads might be exploding all over the internet, but Genesis is a mythic account, especially Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. These early chapters are represent an early Hebraic understanding of how the world came to be. And what's interesting about them is not how well that they describe cosmology or astronomy or physics, but what they teach us about God and God's role in the creation of the cosmos. That's what's vital. Now, uh, that doesn't mean Genesis is entirely mythical. It, there are certainly historical details. And by the way, mythic is a good thing. Uh, when you have something that's mythic, it's more than true. You're talking about themes of the human experience as opposed to mere fact. Now, there's uh, to talk about this particular passage in Genesis 6, we have to understand it in the larger context of a flood story. Now, I almost didn't answer this question because we're getting into a particular type of uh, history and biblical study that I'm far, far from an expert in. Uh, but I'll give a, a shot at it anyway. Um, this flood account that we have uh, in this passage was not the first flood account of its time. There's an earlier Babylonian tale called the Epic of Gilgamesh that has similar elements with gods wiping out humanity for wickedness. And these could come from some actual historical event where there was mass flooding in the Mesopotamian River Valley. Uh, either way, these stories have the gods intervening in our world, and the gods do what they please. But the Genesis account of a flood is different because God promises never to do this again. There's some way that this God can be trusted. Now, when we think about these angels or sons of God, they're in the story of the flood to set the stage. It wasn't unusual at all in early religious mythology to have some kind of sexual contact between humans and deities. And so this story, I think, has the sons of gods and human women together to show that corruption is so rampant that it's beginning to spread beyond the earthly realm, and it's forcing God's hand. He must act. So they're kind of a, they're setting the stage, uh, including these supposed offspring. They're showing that, that creation is radically deviating from the plan of the creator. Do you ever feel like creation is deviating from the plan of the creator? 
Do you ever feel like some kind of reconciliation or starting over is necessary in your life? If so, mythic stories are important to you. Now, let's talk about angels, uh, especially because, but you know, almost eight out of 10 Americans believe in them. What are angels like? Do they have bodies? Well, the biblical accounts certainly indicate that they can take on bodies and take on physical form. And uh, the whole sexy, sexy time with angels things doesn't end here in Genesis 6. Look forward to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and how humans responded to those angel visitors. Um, But I don't think that tells us what angels are like, or at least not scientifically. Again, science only speaks to things that can be measured and quantified. You have to have an observation or an experiment. And angels, if they exist, are decidedly supernatural. They appear and disappear. And I know of no valid scientific account where someone has captured an angel on film or measured them in any way. So in the terms of the scientific view of the world, angels do not exist. And yet we still believe in angels. They still act as some way for us to understand God moving in the world and being involved in our lives. So I can't nail down their characteristics for you, but if part of the way you understand God moves and works and acts in your life and your environments, and that helps you to feel closer to God, it's totally fine by me. Fantastic question. Science Mike. My question is, how do you deal with cognitive dissonance? As a uh, astrophysics enthusiast, uh, aka I can't do the math, I see and read things every day that make me doubt the physical need for God or a higher power to have done something to make the universe the way it is today. But I still feel like there is this God or higher power. What do you do with that? In a lot of ways, this idea of cognitive dissonance is born from a fundamental misunderstanding of how human brains function. Our consciousness presents itself to us as a unified narrative where our agency acts and moves in the world. But that's not how our brains work. In fact, our consciousness is undergirded by unconscious mental processes Hundreds of thousands and even millions of loops in our brain compete for attention, for behavior, and drive different priorities through our skulls. Contrary to a single observer watching some kind of cohesive existence, our mental existence is much more like a giant corporation with millions of employees all going about their business. And the consciousness we most associate with being ourselves is the CEO. Think about the limited picture the CEO or president of a company has about all the myriad operations happening elsewhere. He may not even know what's happening in the mailroom or in the janitorial staff. He's not aware when different departments hire and fire. He's only given the big picture. And in times of crisis... The CEO may no longer be in charge. For example, if the company's facilities were under attack, security guards may rush in and grab the CEO and move him against his will to a place of safety. So it is 
with our brains. Now, what does this have to do with God and the cosmos and the universe's need for God? Well, first, you're right. Modern cosmology doesn't leave a lot of room for the traditional God found in Genesis to exist. Uh, If any religious idea can find sort of philosophical footing with modern cosmology, it's more of a deist God, a God who created a universe that could then perpetuate itself. But at some point, we all agree that the universe was infinitely compressed into something called a singularity. And inside that singularity, things were very, very different. There was no distinction between matter and energy. And we also believe that the four fundamental forces of physics were just one force. That sounds positively mystical to me. I can't imagine if that's not a higher power, what is? This mysterious unified energy that somehow caused everything to be. So while we may say the cosmos does not need a God, I certainly see the signature of God in our creation. I understand others don't. That's fine. I'm just saying I do. I also need God. The universe may or may not need God. I need God. I'm up front with that. I don't worry about it. And that means in all of my millions of neural loops, I have some loops that act a lot like an atheist that approach the world with a reasoned examination of evidence that contemplate morality uh, mainly through the lenses of consent and suffering. And I don't try to kill those loops. They help me make some good decisions. But I also have loops, and I've invested decades of my life in cultivating and understanding God. Not only God, but Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Christian experience. And those parts of my brain and my consciousness open up to me entirely new experiences and different avenues of decision-making and community and um, a culture that I'm very comfortable with. And so guess what? You can call it cognitive dissonance if you like, but I don't try to kill either one of those loops. In my brain, there is a fully functional and aware atheist, and there is a fully functional and aware Christian. My atheist wants to consider the world as a scientist. My Christian just wants to drop his nets and follow Christ. And I let them both go about their merry way. And frankly, I'm happier for it. Perhaps a path to peace for you is learning to accept all the different ways that you contemplate the world and trust that they can all be good in your life. Well, that just about wraps up the first episode of Ask Science Mike. Uh, You guys had some really great questions. I'm excited about the ones we had. Now, I do have several hundred questions that people emailed me for the program. Uh, It's easier for me and, frankly, more fun to me to answer questions that people record and send in. And you can record your question by using the hashtag AskScienceMike. You can record on your phone, whatever you want to use. And uh, then you can post it on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube with the 
AskScienceMike hashtag, and I'll see those questions and answer them on the program. Don't worry if you email a question, if you don't record it, no big deal. I'll make sure I answer more of these in future episodes. Uh, I just want to keep them under 30 minutes overall. You can also go to the Ask Science Mike website at AskScienceMike.com. How easy could that be? And there's a button there uh, where you can submit questions, especially if you want to submit questions that you uh, don't want other people to hear, if they need to be anonymous, if it's the kind of question you're not allowed to ask at your church. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. I really would like to hear what you think. Go to my Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash mike.mccarg, uh, or hit me on Twitter at Mike McCarg. You can also use the at AskScienceMike uh, handle on Twitter, especially because that's very easy to spell. I also want to thank Jeb Bodiford for the very, very wonderful theme song. Uh, Jeb's a talented producer and uh, songwriter. He did all the songwriting. He sang the lyrics, played the instruments, recorded it, the whole thing. And if you need music produced or done like that, especially if you've got a podcast, I bet Jeb would be happy to help you. Uh, his um, Twitter will be linked in the show notes on this episode at AskScienceMike.com. Thank you guys for listening and send in your questions. I can't do it without you. Thank you. Thank you.